Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. I'm Robert Fay in Portland, Oregon, and joined as always by my co-conspirator, Roman Sivkin, uh, in New York, who I'm always glad to collude with. Um, this week on the episode, what we're going to talk about are those unforgettable early reading experiences. Not only books that were massive for you as an early reader, but also you were the, the experience was so intense that you remember everything about your environment, where you were, your friends, your family. Um, and not only kind of Roman and I will sort of recount and talk about some of those experiences, but also I think like what's the effect uh, on you of those experiences later on in life as a reader and a writer? I think we've all had those experiences. I was reading, um, there's a wonderful book by a Russian scholar, writer, um, Elif Baudemann, and she wrote a book called The Possessed, and she studied Russian literature. And she uh, was talking about, you know, what was it about Russian literature that just exploded her mind as a, as a teenager? And she talked about she was Turkish-American, and she was in Ankara uh, as, a, as a teenager visiting her grandmother. And she remembered this red velvet sofa in Ankara, and she had this uh, British copy, maybe a Penguin Classics copy of uh, Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. And she just remembers, like, whatever, for a week, sitting on that red sofa, looking out down on the streets of Ankara. And it all came together, her love of literature, her love of, of being with her grandmother. And that sort of solidified her as a reader. So, you know, Roman, I, I know that, like, you've had, we've talked endlessly about these kind of experiences. I mean, what, and I know this is kind of the topic dear to your heart that you sort of said, hey, man, let's talk about this. Um, I mean, can you sort of like, I mean, give me the book, man. Give me the number mm-hmm. one book that just uh, blew your mind. Oh, my God. And the number one book is really, really hard to pick, Rob. It's it's really because I, I, I wrote my list down for this podcast, and it's really broken down by like um, almost decades by where I was in my, in my life starting from really young. There really isn't uh, – so each period, so to speak, of my life has this kind of book in it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So – Yes. Even even just recently, you know, when we started doing um, thinking about uh, really exploring uh, Wolfgang Hilbig, and we got this nice mm-hmm. package from Two Lines Press, and I started reading the females, and that first paragraph just again just blew me away. I just I remember <laughs> you know, I was as clearly as day because it was yesterday. But uh, <laughs> again, it's going to be one of those memorable reading experiences that I'm probably going to remember for the rest of my life. Um, and it's not my first Hilbig either. I mean, I actually remember my first Hilbig. So my point is. That every period of my life has this kind of book in it that kind of framed everything for me and and sort of propelled me forward uh, into uh, you know, exploring more literature uh, that's either similar or in that same vein or somehow you know nudges me towards some sort of interesting corner of the literary world. So it's really really I, I don't have I don't have like you know the best book ever type of deal except for Finnegan's Wake, but that's that's a different story. We <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> But he, maybe, maybe here's a way to kind of think about it. Um, why there are some books that I absolutely adore, and they've become an important part of my kind of literary DNA. And But I can't remember actually reading them. I can't remember the first time hmm. I read them. Interesting. So why is it specifically that, like, for example, um, you know, I, I talk endlessly about Proust, but I, I can't, I can remember vaguely the period when I discovered him, but I can't remember you know, the first mm. setting of, of Swan's Way. I mean, I also remember, you know, like many adolescents, you know, Jack Kerouac on the road. I mean, you and I grew up real real close to Lowell, Massachusetts. And I, 
I really, I can't really remember kind of the first time I sort of s sat down with the text and went through it. And um, but at the same time, you know, the the, the the writing of the book, the influence of that book is is critical. Right. So, but you, you, so I'm curious why why certain books literally freeze time in its place, and um, uh, we. You know, we love the book, and we also maybe it's what's going on uh, in our lives at that time uh, that was also critical. And somehow, maybe the book is stealing thunder from that period of life instead of vice versa. I mean, I'm wondering: is it the book influencing life, or life in influencing the book, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think it's just a, ma a matter of our the structure of our memory. Like, for instance, you mentioned um, on the road. I also don't remember particularly reading this book that in my surroundings etc i remember the you know approximately when i read it but what i do remember very clearly is i was visiting um you know dan Nissenbaum, our, our mutual friend's house and he's his older brother who's about maybe 10 years older than, than me uh, i was about maybe 16 17 at the time and i remember mentioning that i was reading on the road and how much i loved it and he just just kind of made this face like, oh, it's for young people. It's for teenagers, you know, people in the early 20s. <laughs> and just kind of made this disgusting face. And I remember that moment very clearly because it stung. I'm like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about here? It's a great book. It's not just, you know, for teenagers. But I remember that, that feeling of, of being like stung. Like, wait a second. That's, he's talking about something that I, I'm really loving right now. And he's talking about it in very negative ways. So I remember that, you know. So I think a lot of this is the sort of vagaries of our memories. Uh, the way it's structured, um, some things are crystal clear, and other things, even though the, you know, we put a lot of weight on them, are not that you know sort of take years to develop. Like like Proust, for instance, or even Joyce. I mean, with Joyce, I I remember uh, picking up Finnegan's Wake um, probably around the same age, around sixteen, seventeen, in the Peabody Library, and just being being so intrigued by it but totally not understanding what I was reading but I remember memorizing the first paragraph I remember doing that over like you know a week or something like that I memorized the first paragraph and just kept repeating it to myself because I liked the way it sounded um but it took me years and years and I I, I mean it will take me the rest of my life to really keep reading this book it's not it's not it's not a book that you stop reading you know it's just kind of accompanies you throughout your life um so I think it's that kind of a distinction. But then some books, like um, I might as well start with my list, Rob. Um, um, when I was very young, I'd say maybe around, oh, I don't know, six, six or seven years old. Uh, this was back in Russia. I had a, a series of books about explorers. There were kind of like fictionalized accounts of explorers, uh, sea explorers particularly. And this one book, bound in red leather, I remember it so clearly, was about uh, James Cook, Captain Cook, you know, the famous Captain Cook. And it was just a rollicking adventure, and I just loved it. Of course, it was in Russian. But I took this book with me uh, when, I was, um, when I was already in Israel, and I took it with me when I was traveling from Israel to the United States. Uh, I was immigrating, and I was doing it by myself because my father got here first, he got a job, and then I was sent to America from Israel, and then you know, my mom and the rest of my family followed later. So I was by myself. I was flying from Israel to the United States at the age of 13, and I had this book with me, which I've read you know, many times before, but on this flight, which had many problems, including um, a stopover in Paris that almost ended up in a crash 
we were about to take off from the Paris airport uh, to go to, uh, I believe, Boston. Yeah, Boston. And as the plane gained speed, the pilot suddenly just slammed on the brakes. We all went you know, forward, kind of crashing our heads into the front seats, you know, the seats in front of us. And then we got, you know, basically had to wait for like six hours at the airport until whatever problem with the airplane was fixed. But I read this freaking book <laughs> like five or six times during this layover in Paris. And I just, I'll never forget that because I was too shy to – and I didn't speak any English, so I was too shy to – go out and look for food. I'm sure they provided food for the passengers who were stranded, you know. So I was basically the starving 13-year-old uh, <laughs> with this full head of curly hair and just, just my violin with me, a tiny little suitcase and my violin. It was really kind of a sad, <laughs> pathetic sight reading this book over and over and over again. But I tell you, to this day, Rob, Captain Cook is my favorite guy as far as explorers go. I love this guy. So, you know, <laughs> kind of a weird, weird kind of a bookish slash travel experience at the age of 13 or so. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, in thinking about this, you know, you often, I mean, as, as readers, as, as book people, you know, in quote unquote normal life, you're at your jobs or whatever, and you encounter people who think of reading uh, in books as, as something that they were forced to do, whatever, in high school or in college and and they don't read anymore, and they think of books as they sort of vaguely admire people who read a lot, but there's a sense that like it's a burden, or mm. I don't want to. Did do you that. see? And I did you see? Sorry to interrupt you, Rob. Did you see that uh, yeah. just recent uh, article in the New Yorker about the death of literature? Yet another article on the death of literature. <laughs> I, I I did not. Uh, yeah, don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, my my I think my point is simply that I think if you don't have these almost romantic early experiences with writing or excuse me, with reading that um, in your only sort of, it's only put on you as a, an assignment later in life, you know, maybe that's where things kind of get ruined. Um, yeah. I'm sure it's got to start early. This, this love of reading. I mean, you know, both of us were just, uh, you know, I think it, it happened to us naturally. Um, it's just something that we're, we're drawn to. I mean, I was always kind of a shy shy kid who would just prefer to have his nose in in the book rather than, you know, talking to people or playing or whatever. Um, Even in high school, I remember I spent many a happy uh, math period (laughs) reading in the back of the class. (laughs) You know, just, I read, I read through all through, I mean, basically very autodidactic. I, I just read my education. I did not really participate that much in my formal education, but I just educated myself through reading. You know, I just read a ton and just followed my literary nose. Totally. You know, I, I, one of my critical early reading experiences, and it's somewhat linked to you, is um, my first encounter with Thoreau and particularly with, with Walden. Mm. My, my initial introduction was you had picked up a copy, um, one of those mass market paperbacks from the 80s with a yellow cover something, is that the one yes yes, yes some, something like the whatever the collected writings of henry david throw and i remember the the part that you were excited about was an essay called i think on walking walking yes yeah and so that that sort of got you uh thinking about walking in the woods and i think we went to the uh, middleton reservoir and we did some walking and and for listeners, we grew up in suburban Boston and actually not far from Concord, Massachusetts. I think we went. Didn't we go? Did you, were you there yeah. with me? We went to Walden Pond at some point, I'm sure. We did. Yeah. We, we made a pilgrimage. And so, um, you know, you in your kind of romantic 15-year-old self described this guy who, 
who lived uh, by the woods and, and kind of stepped out of society and was at one with, with nature and, and kind of thumbed his nose at society. And I remember as a 15, 16-year-old, um, from that I eventually got a copy of Walden. And I, and I can distinctly remember uh, in suburban Massachusetts, in my bedroom, going through that. And there was too much for me to totally understand all the context. I mean, in Walden, it's a strange book. He talks about, uh, quote-unquote, Hindu philosophy, right? He talks about uh, Indian philosophy. He starts talking, he talks a lot about the classics, about the Greeks. He, um, he's a, a, a naturalist. He's a, a, a botanist, an amateur botanist of some kind. And he goes into all these sort of things. And of course, at 16, I wasn't, just didn't know enough to really appreciate this, but I did appreciate the intimacy of a writer connecting with me as a reader. Mm. And there was a, you know, there was a journal quality to Walden. And I think, you know, we know that Walden, a lot of it was drawn from his his journals when he was um, living at Walden. But to me, and I, I make some attempt to write even here a million years later, and to me, what was achieved in Walden, this sort of, it's hard, it's obviously not fiction, but it's also not some kind of documentary uh, naturalist experience. It's a weird, it's Thoreau meditating on what really matters to him, which I think at the end is what really good writing is about. And I immediately after reading Walden was inspired to keep a diary. Mm-hmm. I don't call it a journal. Mm-hmm. I don't call it a journal because a journal is an elevated thing. And at 16, all I could do was a diary. Right. You know, uh, uh, went to the mall today or, you know, whatever it was, went to basketball practice. But I was trying. And and to this day, um, you know, Thoreau is the is the yardstick. You know, Mm -hmm. um, if I could ever make a reader feel the way I felt um, and he opened the world up. And so, um, uh, I mean, like I said, I can. I think it was autumn when I was reading it. And, you know, autumn in New England is a very sensual experience. And uh, um, it's know, interesting that you have a, a with Thoreau, you have some, some um, a, a kind of outdoors memory and outdoor, which is very appropriate for Thoreau, right? An outdoors memory. Like most of my reading is it has, you know, the, the, the memory of is being indoors uh, in rooms, mm-hmm. like in classrooms and stuff like that, you know. But with Thoreau, me too. Me too. I, I kind of associate that first reading experience with nature, uh, maybe because it was about nature. <laughs> but, you know, but uh, in, in, it started exploration fact, of being can, outside, you know. Totally. And in fact, I can recall once that you and I, again, we're 16, 17. We drove, we went to Harvard Square and we bought uh, clove cigarettes, right, from uh, <laughs> Mac- McIntyre and Moore uh-huh. in Harvard Square, which is a, a tobacconist that's still around. And we drove straight out to Concord. It was the middle of winter. And um, we uh, pulled up somewhere uh, near Walden Pond. And I remember we, we smoked our clove cigarettes and we kind of looked down upon uh, Walden Pond. And, and yes, uh, I yes. don't think we were specifically talking about Thoreau. But um, to me, that, that's what books are about. They're about life, you know, ultimately. And I think maybe that's what gets missed with people who don't have their life blown away by books is somehow this is not about um, ideas or or some lofty intellectual thing this is about living your life and and this is uh, if yeah. you could communicate I mean, one l- thing listen, to people listen, this, simply this, that 
to really right. want to live your life well, books are are a parallel or or a confluence of that. I don't know. It's it's deep stuff. I, I probably should try to write about. Well, it. Well, I tell you, I mean, I had a very. I think I've talked about this briefly before. I've had a this kind of awakening, kind of an awakening moment with with um, an early awakening moment with some of these books, like Notes from the Underground, uh, Dostoevsky's. Yeah. Uh, uh, really powerful work, and I remember reading it in homeroom in high school. Right, you know, the homeroom meaning you know the first class of the day, you're gonna have to show up and you know be counted type of deal. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. And I remember reading this you know in Russian because luckily I kept up with my Russian, so I was reading it in Russian. And I remember one point lifting my eyes from the book and looking around me and feeling very strange. I again one of those very visceral memories. Feeling like I was just uh, basically my head was just in something completely wonderful and intense, and so I don't know. You know, being being a teenager was very existential and very like important. And I was looking <laughs> around me as I as I lifted my head, and all these kids were just kind of like messing around, throwing spitballs, and you know, and going about their sort of high schooly kind of thing. <laughs> and I remember feeling this sense of unreality or sense of stronger reality in a way coming emanating from notes from the underground like it was it was the more important thing than what was happening actually happening around me you know, a little yes. w- Walter Mittyish, I guess, but uh, you know, and a similar effect with Macbeth. We started reading Macbeth in English class, and it was my first exposure to Shakespeare. And I remember my my English at this point wasn't even that great. I mean, my English was only like two three years old. And I remember reading Macbeth in 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 class, and again lifting my eyes, and just my eyes. I'm sure were just these big saucers, and looking around my classmates and saying, thinking to myself, really, like, how are you guys not just bowled over by this? How are guys, how are you guys not yeah. just standing up and screaming, "Holy shit! Look at this language! <laughs> I mean, read this language!" You know, I was just amazed that they were just so calm and like blah blah about it, blase about it. Like it's just, you know, it's just English class. It's boring. Shakespeare's boring. And I was just, I I didn't understand a lot of what I was reading, but the language just just jumped at me and just grabbed me by the throat and just would not let go, you know, to this day. I mean, you read Shakespeare like, holy crap, you know? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's it's that sort of mystery of why others aren't simply doing cartwheels. You know, probably I, 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 failed in some measure, but in a recent essay in in Three Quarks Daily, I was trying to get at, there's a kind of indifference towards literature today. And and I'm not sure quite whose fault it is, but but somehow almost if you you think of the way that uh, uh, evangelical Christians approach the world, this idea, they don't sit around saying, well, you know, nobody follows Jesus because, um, oh shucks, you know, they're a bunch of idiots. I mean, generally their feeling is, we need to go out and evangelize, right? So, so evangelical Christians kind of put it upon themselves. Um, and I almost wonder if this is the problem, that, that somehow um, we, keep, we keep the secret to ourselves. I know that's probably a different, uh, a different podcast to explore, yeah. quote-unquote, liter- literature is dead. Well, I, I was, um, I'll tell you, I was thinking— I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I was but, thinking a little bit about that, too, but just after reading that New Yorker piece, and just in general, I've been thinking about this for years now. Uh, and this thought occurred to me that you know how you know how they, they say that you know you can't know everything nowadays. There's just too many things to know. Like the last person who knew everything, meaning meaning everything, meaning the intellectual sort of happenings of of, of the time was what 150 years ago, something like that, 100 years ago at least. 
And so what's been happening since then is that we just we just it's just, it's just the, the world is too vast. There's just too many aspects to it to encompass in any kind of one brain. And so literature, where it used to be, remember literature, especially like even like in Thoreau's time, Americans had literary. I mean, people, even simple people, would have Shakespeare at home. You know, they would have, and they would read Shakespeare, and they would read Dickens, and that was like a a popular activity in 19th century America. Uh, it just, you know, people respected literature, and it was a part of everyday life, even again for people who were not quote unquote intellectuals. Um, but it all started changing because so many other influences start popping up. Then you have movies, TV. Um, and now the world of science is just blown up completely. So there's just way too much out there. And so literature is viewed as this kind of strain of just one strain of things, which it is. And I don't think any any particular writer can encompass the whole world at this point, uh, at least not post Finnegan's Wake. Um, so I think that's part of the problem is this fragmentation of knowledge and, and the, yes. the amount of it. Is that yes. and it's the distractions that we all face um, that kind of push literature, yeah. you know, kind of elbowed it to the side. I, I right. I mean, undoubtedly, the 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 media offerings, the fragmentation of the culture, all of this is a part of it. But I also like the idea of putting the responsibility back on oneself. And I was reading a recent uh, review. Um, I occasionally get these periods where I'm become fascinated and obsessed with William T. Volman, the, the novel, the great novelist. And uh, he wrote, he, he's an insane re- writer in terms of his output and his books, uh, there's some varying quality, but the ambition is always there. And he, he wrote a book that I want to get to called The Dying Grass. And it, it chronicles um, the Indian uh, wars uh, here in Oregon, actually, in Eastern Oregon. And um, the, I read a review in the New York Times and it, you know, it, it, it ultimately what it said, you know, there are flaws to this book, there's brilliance. But what is un, undeniable is that in every book, Volman tries to do that, to try to like capture the absolute cosmological complexity of being a human being and to try to capture it from a million angles. And I, I just love that. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe at some point, we can recapture the imagination of of uh, yeah. I don't know. At least the at least the average reader. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. know. I think I, I think know. we're perhaps need some sort of new vocabulary, new kind of language for that. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, and Vol- Volman's uh, attempts are wonderful, but they're you know quixotic. They're they're uh, slightly doomed from the get go. <laughs> you know, I think anyway. Uh, but listen, yeah. let's get yeah. back to uh, to our reading totally. moments. It, um, I have another it, one. It, if, let me, let me go for let me go first since we're you mentioned Harvard Square. Um, for our listeners, we uh, Rob and I have spent many many a happy moment at Harvard Square. It used to be our kind of hangout during high school. We would would pile into my car and go there on a regular basis. It was only about twenty minute drive from us. And um, uh, there's a wonderful cafe uh, in Harvard Square. It's still there. It's called Tangiers. A Moroccan cafe, and it used to be uh, – they renovated uh, some years ago, so it's a nice kind of a posh-looking place right now. But it used to be this – literally uh, kind of this basement-y hole in the wall 
dark. Yes. Uh, people smoked in there. You know, we smoked in there. It was just we felt so cool going in there with all the Harvard students around us, and you know, and then the semi darkness that you can still read at, you know, and the, this wonderful Turkish coffee that would just get us all juiced. Um, and I remember, I think I must have been waiting for you or something like that. I remember reading Philip K. Dick. Um, I think it was the Three Stigmata of Palmer and Eldridge uh, in that environment, in this dark, smoky cafe. And and again, just just with, with Philip K. Dick, it's basically like, you know, if, if you read him at, the, at a certain time of your life, it's it's pretty much like a psychedelic drug. Uh, it's, it's, I remember just thinking how how... Does he pull this off? I remember thinking, it's it's impossible. How how can such a clunky stylist? You know, he's not a not a very you know, he's not a great writer per se, as a writer, but he definitely gets his point across. And I was just uh, unforgettable. I'm just just the whole environment of of Tangiers and P- PKD really really worked for me. Do you remember reading anything in that cafe? Because we certainly spent a lot of time there. You know, uh, the, the memories of the cafe are, are incredibly strong. And in fact, um, the cafe still exists, but it actually moved across town. What? So the original, yeah. So um, the original location, it was in the basement of this old kind of wooden, <clears throat> um, almost Victorian type building. And um, the current location is about, you know, half a mile away. So, really? um, huh. yeah, exactly. So, so the, um, uh, the building now, I th- last I checked, last I was there, was I think a restaurant called Grendel's, and it's a bar. So you go you go down in still, but it's a kind of pub. Of some I kind, thought they so. just renovated the place from scratch. No, yeah. they, they, they left that location and uh, moved, like I said, closer to the, I think, the cemetery that uh, is over there in Harvard Square. But no, I remember it, dude, and, and I think, again, this, I, I've, I've tried to explore this and recapture this, but I think... There was a time where, I mean, Harvard Square in the mid to late 80s still had a bit of that bohemian flavor from the 1960s. And there were still professors with pipes and tweed jackets and also hippies. And there was a sense that, I mean, Harvard Square was truly bohemian. It wasn't kind of corporate the way it is today. And, and I think you and I were able to kind of pick up on that vibe. And, yeah. And there was something, yeah. there was something cool about book people they they smoked they were uh, uh black turtlenecks well also they, remember um, at the time rob there were 26 used book well just bookstores many of them used bookstores 26 in one square mile yeah. i mean which yeah, is it, which it, is i mean obviously now is like what four <laughs> something like that <laughs> you know right they they used they used to say that um only next to paris um uh cambridge harvard square had more square miles more bookstores per square mile than anywhere else but Paris, mm. and, and probably was true in those days. Yeah. Um, no, I remember it. I don't remember actually reading anything, mostly just sort of uh, smoking and talking and, and trying to pretend like I was mm-hmm. some kind of, yeah. Uh, Existentialist. Har- yeah. Harvard, Harvard undergrad right. or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, um, here, and, and I've told you about this, but he, here's a memory that, that is very strong for me, and and that was a book I haven't read since then and maybe will never read, but um, Of Human Bondage by, mm. by Somerset Mom. And so I was kind of thinking about it uh, this morning, and I found this really great quote uh, in The Guardian from this writer, Robert McCrum. And so he talks about how in England it is t- the quintessential adolescent book. And he writes, and I didn't actually know that, but he wrote, um, uh, in aspects of the novel, E.M. Forrester wrote, 
The final test of a novel will be our affection for it, as it is the test of our friends, of anything else that we cannot define. And then the writer goes on to say, he might have been writing about W. Somerset Maugham's masterpiece of Human Bondage. For English readers, this is a buildings Roman we mostly first encounter as an adolescent. And then he goes on to say, Mom's unforgettable portrait of Philip Carey is one that teenagers typically will ingest like junkies. And uh, so I, I remember reading it as a sophomore. I was at Suffolk University in Boston, um, and I had, uh, they had dormitories in the back bay, if you can believe it. Mm. I was this poor college student living um, on Commonwealth Avenue in the back bay. Nice. And I remember uh, a little mass market paper book with uh, a maroon cover of Human Bondage. And, you know, uh, it follows this, uh, this boy, Philip Carey, who has a club foot. So he's, you know, he's got this ailment. He's uh, kind of a medical student. He's in London, and he falls for this woman, this woman who treats him horribly, who uh, is, is unfaithful, who spurns him. Yet, you know, Philip Carey feels kind of like, um, I don't know, maybe the way a lot of adolescent boys feel. They, they don't know how to connect with women. They're awkward, all these sorts of things. So she kind of keeps him. She teases him. She keeps him on a leash. Uh, she treats him horribly, but he he continues to to try to love her, and he continues to get hurt. Um, and I think you know, for a lot of uh, young guys who, as you said, introverts, readers, uh, maybe being spectacular with the ladies uh, wasn't exactly <laughs> uh, what we were great at. And so, I just remember being so transfixed by by this character and, and feeling like it really spoke to so much of what I was going through. And then to, and then to read that uh, generations of British boys uh, feel the same thing is is interesting. And um, mm. you know, it the other the weird connection to try to connect it to how it affected me uh, as as I went on as a reader and writer is I think it's the very same dynamic within. Uh, Proust Swan's way where you have Charles Swan the aristocrat and he gets kind of hung up on this um, courtesan uh, named um, Odette de Crecy and she's a uh, a quote unquote kind of shallow woman and she's a, she's a, she's maybe not the kind of woman a man like him should be fascinated with and transfixed by but again she's sort of um, she kind of has his number, and he gets all sort of uh, bent out of shape and and uh, can't kind of escape her web, so to speak. And so I often think that maybe it was, you know, this experience of the character Philip Carey and his uh, involvement with this cruel woman. Hmm. Um, and and, and that, that dynamic in literature has always kind of fascinated me, and, uh, you know, I wonder if it came from that moment. But to this day... Um, I remember sitting in that bed in my dormitory, and I remember precisely that feeling that you just described in Homeroom, where you occasionally literally look up from the page and just think both life is unreal and also life is so spectacular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, And maybe that's the kind of, that's the amazing thing about a book that just blows your mind is somehow... It's more. It's it's more real than real life. Well, it changes. Um, it changes the way you look from your peepers. You know, your from your eyes. It literally changes the way you look at the world, not just conceptually, but I think I I would. I mean, I'm probably pushing the envelope here, but I think literally, you know, 
Because uh, yeah. I, I remember being changed by some of these books. It just literally changed. That was like not the same. Um, and and I, I, I want to stress that I assume what you don't mean is, and this is, this is something I, I plan to write about quite soon here, is it, you're changed, but you're not better. Oh, no, no, no. Moral. Oh, God, no. None of yeah, those kind no, no, of no, no, no yeah, self-help the, bullshit here. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Yes. No, no, no. In, in fact, sometimes <laughs> change for the worse in a way. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, yeah. like, like Illuminatus is another book on my list here that I wanted to talk about briefly. Uh, and you're by Robert Anton Wilson and uh, Robert Shea. They wrote it uh, in the 70s. And it's just this huge, very, very joycy and uh, three-volume uh, multi-world conspiracies uh, it's just a ridiculous book but wonderful and, and it really it kind of almost corrupted me in a way because <laughs> there's a lot of drug use in there uh, a lot of uh, you know uh, sex scenes which for a 16, 17 year old as I read it was just quite a huge bonus but I remember experimenting with, with pot <laughs> afterwards you know so it really kind of corrupted me in the sort of the classical sense but obviously corrupted towards the uh, better better situation here as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yeah, Illuminatus was a major, major influence on me um, because I then went on to read all of his um, Robert Anton Wilson, his nonfiction stuff, uh, all of his other fiction things. And it really um, then spun me off because it was largely because of Robert Anton Wilson that I got interested in James Joyce because he was such a jo- Joyce fan. So he pushed me towards Finnegan's Wake, um, towards um, uh, Burroughs, which, by the way, I read uh, Burroughs in um, – is another book on my list here, Naked Lunch. I remember reading it in uh, my dormitory at Brandeis and, again, being – just thinking, what the hell am I reading? But I, I was not able to stop reading. I just had to read the whole thing very quickly, and it really changed me in some very radical way. Um you know, so so Robert Anton Wilson had a huge kind of influence on me in general. Um, but then things like Bukowski, I read in my twenties a lot. Which I will defend Bukowski to the to to my dying days because a lot of, a lot of people think he's a young people, you know, young person's writer or you know people who like to drink or something like that. But Bukowski is a natural writer uh, par excellence. He is, uh, like I said, I, any anybody who wants to argue with me on Bukowski, I'll take him on. Uh, but he's definitely very important for me as well. Yeah, Post Office, in, in, particularly his first book that I read, Post Office. Yeah, I think um, Bukowski actually looked the the bull in the eyes, and uh, and and, and uh, you can feel that in his writing. Yeah, um, he he wasn't he wasn't sort of um, toying with the bull. He went in the ring and took it on. And and there's something, yeah. Um, very real about what's going on there, and I, like I said, I mean, I think he's a he's a he's a, a natural writer, and I, I've been trying to develop this idea of what what is a natural writer, and I'm still kind of confused about the whole thing. But basically, what I mean by that is somebody who can't help but write; they have to write. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these other writers, you know, I, I don't know if Joyce really needed to write; he just needed to express his incredible brilliance somehow, so it ended up being in writing. Mm. But Bukowski was literary. Uh, he just, you know, he he was just so literary right from the get-go. Uh, even though, of course, his books are, f- you know, filled with profanities and and not, you know, beautiful, flowery, you know, literary language. Uh, God save us from that. Yes. But um, yes. 
And then something to completely contrast it, something that I've read many years later, is um, Soseki, the Japanese writer, The Three-Cornered World. Uh, so mm. different from Bukowski, right? It's completely different, but yet affected me uh, just as powerfully. Uh, by the way, this is, this, this is uh, I think, the Bible and Soseki's Three-Cornered World were the two books on Glenn Gould's uh, uh, bedside table when he died. So it was a very important yes. book for him as well. And, and you know, since we talked about Glenn Gould last time, um, yes. So I'm, you know, again, just this weird reading taste that I have, going from Bukowski to Soseki to uh, obscure science fiction writers like Barrington J. Bailey. Please, please, anybody who likes Philip K. Dick or who likes science fiction who's listening to this, please look up Barrington J. Bailey, an obscure science fiction writer. Um, praised by uh, people like Bruce Sterling um, as the hidden Zen master of science fiction. And he truly is that. And I'll just point out one short story that I've read of his that, that um, blew my mind is, is not the right words for that because it's just, that's just too weak of a, <laughs> of a formulation. The Ship of Disaster, written 1965. Uh, short story that I still... I still, I just, I don't understand it exactly, but it draws me. Uh, it's like magic. There's something about the short story that I will never forget. And of course, I read everything by Barrington J. Bailey. Uh, you guys, please, if you like science fiction or if you like interesting, weird ideas, uh, Barrington J. Bailey, look him up, read his stuff. Some of his stories are available online. Hit me up on Twitter. I'll send you some stories, please. This guy has to be read. And, and that's at Zenju, yes. listeners. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, um, yeah. And, and again, I think, the, you know, knowing you all these years, the thing that comes through and, and the critical parts of the passion. Mm. You know, and, and, and so, so like, again, I'm, I'm still thinking of this idea of, I'll throw two examples, um, both reading experiences from, you know, whatever, the aughts, the last, the early aughts, mm-hmm. the last uh, 15 years or so. And, and one is, and I, I, I will recommend this. I will evangelize from uh, continent to continent. And that is the Spanish writer Javier Marias. And he wrote three books called um, uh, the Your Face Tomorrow Trilogy. And there are three books in that trilogy. And they're like, it's someone once described it as uh, Proust married to a detective novel. And um, there's just something fascinating in these books. And so these are books that I absolutely love. But again, for some reason, the actual experience of reading them, I, I remember vaguely encountering them and, and gobbling them up. And, and like I said, I would defend them. Uh, they're the, the, the beauty of these books, I defend them with my life. But um, I contrast that with uh, uh, reading 266. Two, six, six, six. Six. <laughs> <laughs> by, by the Chilean writer Roberto Bolano. And so... Um, Again, this is the book I read probably around a similar time, whatever, mid-aughts. I remember sitting, I was living in Laguna Niguel, California in Orange County, and I can remember sitting in my second bedroom slash study. And it was the experience of reading through this, pausing, putting the bookmark in the book, Mm -hmm. putting the book down, and literally looking out the window and going, my goodness. Yes. And it was this, this <laughs> confluence of this confluence of like this book, this artist, but also life. I'm alive. I tell you, if I if and, I could bottle I, that moment, 
right? Oh. If we can just bottle that moment of putting the book down and, and raising your eyes and seeing oh, the world life. anew, it, it's just it's really, really what I live for, frankly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and you know, there's also as somebody who writes, there's this complicated feeling of, um, you know, the, admiring the craft of like, well my goodness, how, how did he achieve right, what he right. just achieved? And so there's thinking about that. But, but ultimately, the, the, the adolescent passionate reader tends to win out over the kind of critical craftsman eye. And I just remember being so moved um, by what he was able to achieve. And I, I know I've pushed that, that book on you quite a bit. Yeah, um, I have it, man. I started it. And at some point, I, I stopped and I, could, I, yeah, I lost the thread, so to speak. And I it's on my shelf. It's staring me right now. Give me this you know, guilty looks. Um, yeah. It, I'll and, get to it at some point for sure. But but let me throw out a fear, and, and I'm curious what you think about it. So one of my fears is these – I don't uh, – I continue to encounter books that I absolutely love and want to talk about and want to write about. But I have to say the the fundamental experience that I just described – seems to be I, I'm having less of those. Not less engagement with the book, but less of a like you put the book down and you, mm. you, you stumble around the room. And, and so I fear that, um, you know, is this just, you know, you get older, uh, you've read so many books. I mean, I, I, I do write book reviews, so I have a kind of quote-unquote professional uh, side to some of this. So... Um, that's a fear of mine, frankly, because as you said, that's a drug, and I want more of it. Well, you know how you know how um, there's there's something I think I'm, I might have mentioned it before, so I apologize. I mentioned it again, but there's um, uh, something I heard. I don't know how true this is, but it rang true to me that two thirds of our sort of lived experience have actually you know sort of remembering how not remembering, but two thirds of our living experience happens before the age of eight because you know how time is so slow when you're a kid it's you know, summers tend to be just last forever and things sure. have you know, kind of speed up as you get older well this this is what this is referring to that two-thirds of your sort of lived life happened by the age of eight so i think maybe yeah. this has something to do with it the fact that we're our time a sense of time is different so, I mean, I, I too noticed kind of a slowdown in these um, reality bombs yes. from books. However, they happen. Look, they just happened yesterday. And I already know Hilbig. I've been reading Hilbig for, for, you know, for the last two years or so. You had to pick up the females, this latest uh, translation from Two Lions Press. And I'm reading the first paragraph and I put the book down and I look up and, and all I can think of is, holy shit. Holy shit. I mean, what, what a writer. What, how, how does this work? You know, so there is a moment just yesterday, exactly the yeah. same type of moment, yeah. I, you know. But you're right. I mean, before that, I mean, I have to go back to uh, Murnane, Gerald Murnane, the Australian writer. Uh, when I read Barley Patch, maybe three, four, five years ago, forget already. But having the same kind of experience. Oh, and actually more recently, I finally got to Frederick Exley's A Fan's Notes, which you, Rob, should definitely read. It's an American um, work. It's so powerful. Um, William Gaddis was enamored of it, uh, as, as well as many other writers. Um, oh, and speaking of Gaddis, do you do you remember that there was a summer where people re- were reading J.R. On, online together? 
uh, yeah, it was like, you know, I forget, like, again, four or five years ago. So I, I was joined that, and I was rereading JR because I read it uh, before. And I, I actually very distinctly remember enjoying it so much, making so many notes. I read it up in um, – while my wife was teaching uh, summer school for dance at uh, UC, um, uh, at uh, SUNY Purchase at the Purchase University here at State, State, State University of New York. So there's been kind of a beautiful surroundings you know, in the woods. I was reading J.R. and just laughing my head off and making notes and, and just thinking to myself, how does he do this? How is this possible? This guy is a genius. You know, but the, you're right. These moments are far and few you know, between the, I, at this I, point. We, we should probably start to wrap up. I, I will say one thing, though, to kind of put a bow on it is – Despite maybe these uh, less and less of these reality bomb experiences, as you said, which is a which is a good way of thinking about it, I I do find though that um, books that I I read as a teenager, as a college student, like classics like uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne or Melville, I read them with no interest, no appreciation. I, they made very little, uh, they had little, very little effect on me, and now. I've encountered some of those books. Just the other day, I was flipping through The House of Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I was, uh, I was amazed at how fascinating and uh, the, the way he writes. I, I put it aside and said, my goodness, there's an mm. absolute, uh, there's, there, there's a beautiful, uh, fascinating world to explore there. And, and I, you know, I've had similar experiences later in life with books like um, whatever, War and Peace or uh, Moby Dick, where... Uh, I don't think I could have stuck with them or appreciated them um, 25 years ago. So I'm 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 sort of grateful. Yeah, or at least appreciated them differently. I mean, because I, I remember like a, trying to approach um, Ulysses uh, too young. You know, I was 17, something like that, and didn't work. Didn't work five. Five times I knocked on that door before it opened for me. You know, but I did. I kept on knocking. I yeah. think that's the key. Yeah. Is that we, we shouldn't forget these these works maybe that were from our childhood that were assigned to us or we kind of left behind somehow because sometimes when you knock again the door does open and it's just wonderful when that happens. Yeah, I and, and I've been uh, poking around with uh, the the book I think I mentioned last time, Studies in Classic American Literature by D. H. Lawrence, and he looks at Poe and he looks at Hawthorne uh, and Melville and James Fenimer Cooper and. Um, you know, we can often overlook the the homegrown literature that's right here, and and you know Lawrence really makes the case that American literature in the 19th century was um, completely original, and it's deriving from this completely new consciousness, and that we must stand back and marvel, and um, and I think because these books were were often pushed upon us in high school by maybe well-meaning but poor teachers in high school or whatever, um, I've always had a well, you know, they, they they have to they have to teach a certain curriculum, right? So it's probably something that they were right. assigned, right? Yeah. So I've I've always had a certain <laughs> if if you had the freedom to choose as a teacher which which books to assign yeah. to your kids, I mean, you wouldn't be working in a high school in a public suppose. high school, you know. But I I guess I've always had a certain <laughs> tension with those American classics, kind of like, well, I don't know, I I I'd, I'd much rather read French French books or or Russian novels or whatever. Um, so maybe someday I'll I'll sort of revisit all of them and. Uh, well, I tell you, I, 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 me too, <laughs> me too. But, but, but it's funny how it's for me. It, for me, it's a circu- circuitous route because Arno Schmidt, 
my my favorite favorite German writer, or at least uh, you know, not favorite, but one of the favorites, I should say. Um, he absolutely loves uh, James Fenimore Cooper and Poe, and, and there's so many references in his works to these guys that I I'm I'm drawn to just rereading or just reading for the first time some stuff that yeah. I haven't read at all. So it's kind of a weird by way of Germany <laughs> reintroduction to American literature. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. I've because I've always been in that period. I for me, it's mostly been Thoreau and Emerson. Thoreau and Emerson. You know, these were kind of my touchstones, mm. and the fiction I've mm-hmm. always kind of. Uh, kept it at arm's length. And, you know, I, I was just reading the other day, and I, I actually had no idea that um, uh, Hawthorne became somewhat interested in transcendentalism. And although he wasn't close to Emerson and Thoreau, he, he knew them a bit. And and so I, I guess I didn't really know that, that these... Well, you know, Rob, I should... I really want to. I'm sorry, I yes. interrupted you again. I'm sorry, man. But um, I, uh, we, we should probably make this uh, another episode because, um, you know, my favorite sort of philosopher guy... And, and friend uh, uh, who died yes. recently, uh, Raymond Smullyan. Yes. Uh, very influential book of his is The Tao yes. is Silent that I read. It's a nonfiction, a really fun book. But through him, I read all of his stuff, and I've met him, and we've talked. And and he he has a strange influence on my reading because he's you know he died a few years ago now. He was 97 years old. So his literary tastes go yes. way back. And so through his writings and just talking to him, he's introduced me to all these interesting writers like um, uh, Mabby, I think it's, it's – I'm not sure how may, – maybe it's pronounced Mabby, but it's M-A-B-E-Y, I believe, is, is this essayist from the 19th century, American essayist, and all these oldy, old-timey kind of writers that you don't find their books republished anymore. There are these old – uh, you know, smelly, mildewy books that you may find in a library somewhere. They were published in you know 1930, the last time or something like that. So I've been, I've, I kind of explored this whole uh, American literature of the, of the sort of the, it's, it hasn't been reprinted and republished. Uh, and it's a very that's where I picked up that whole thing about you know Americans reading Shakespeare in the 19th century regularly, just regular Americans. Um, um, and stuff like that. So it's really fascinating how much we've lost um, over the century because certain people are not reprinted. And so certain voices are, are lost and sometimes for a good reason, but sometimes for no good reason at all because they're just wonderful yeah. writers and with wonderful yep. ideas. So there's a lot of blind spots that we have uh, simply because there's just so much crap out there. There's so much stuff Absolutely. out there. You know? And, and uh, so maybe that is a future podcast. And, uh, and that kind of brings us to the end of our current podcast. I know, Aww. exactly. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to, uh, we've had a few requests from folks that say, hey, how come you're not um, on iTunes? How come uh, I can't download that? So that's something we're going to try to rectify. We're going to migrate over from uh, SoundCloud over to, um, to iTunes so you can download the podcast there. So look for that. And uh, anything else, Roman, before we close up? No, no, I guess till yeah, next time, and, Rob. And uh, uh, look for a future episode where we dive into uh, Wolfgang Hilbig, East German writer, who we're, we're both kind of uh, stewing on right now. So, so we'll wrap it up. And again, if you want to uh, stay in touch with Roman, you can find him on Twitter at Zenju. And I'm on Twitter as well, um, at Robert Fay One. So uh, thanks again, Roman. And I know it's 96 degrees in New York, so... So stay mm-hmm. sane. Okay, man. Thanks, Rob. Bye now. Until next time.